Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Stephen Key with me. Stephen has successfully licensed more than 20 simple ideas that have generated billions of dollars of revenue during the past 30 years. Stephen holds 12 patents. His products have been sold by some of the most recognized brands, such as Disney and Walmart. Stephen has won many awards, including the Edison Awards. Stephen is the author of One Simple Idea. Welcome. Thank you very much, George, for that introduction. Thank you. I'm sure I left a lot of, a lot out, but <laughs> I try to include as much as I could in the, uh, the short intro. That's plenty. Thank you. <laughs> so thanks for being here, Stephen. Can you talk about, I mean, you're a very creative guy, and I'm, I'm very excited uh, about this interview because, um, you know, you have done so much. And you're, all, you're very creative. How, is this something that you, you weren't born with, or this is something that you developed over time? George, I think you're being very kind. I, I'm not that creative. I found a way to take some of my simple ideas, and my ideas are very, very simple. I'm, I'm not really an inventor. I'm, I'm more of a product developer, I guess. I see I make small changes on existing ideas. They're very simple, and then I show those to companies, and if they like, uh, they like those ideas, they they license those ideas for me. I collect royalties. But I guess I think I'm more creative in the process of how to do it rather than my ideas. My ideas are not that great, George. <laughs> so I'm glad you said that about process. Um, can, you, can you give us some example about being creative with the process of making small changes to ideas that have been out there? Because I think a lot of people want to come up with the revolutionary idea, you know, something that's going to change life as we know it on earth. And when you look at really successful businesses, they don't do that. You know, all they do is, like you said, they make a modification uh, to something that has been out there for a long time already. No, that, that's a, actually a wonderful question. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, when you create something that is so different, it's going to require education. It's going to take a lot of time. Of course, it's going to take a lot of money, and there's a lot of risk with that, right? So if you look at it uh, a little differently, it's those small changes, new and improved. It's those little things that you do that, uh, to an existing product that already has a market. They're already selling the product, so there's not a lot of risk for you to make a small improvement for, for a company to license it from you and, and, and go ahead and sell it on the marketplace. The marketplace uh, constantly wants new, new, new. It's this huge monster that has an appetite, and as creative people just need to feed it with those small improvements. So you have so many ideas, and you had so many ideas uh, in the past uh, you know, three, 30 years, three decades. How do you evaluate your ideas? Do you have an, an internal process um, you know, to validate these ideas? Three simple steps, George. Thank you. Number one, I, I, would, I want to work on an idea that has a large audience, number one. Okay. I think that's important because it's going to take, you know, it's going to take work. So I, I want to be rewarded for my efforts. So I, 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 I try to find an idea that has a large market. And how do you define large? I mean, it, it, does it mean that it only can be a consumer market or? Well, 
I look at some of the large retailers. My, my ideas are basically product um, ideas. So it can be a service, but it's usually a product. So if, if I find a similar product that's selling at a Walmart or Home Depot or some of the larger retailers, I know it's got a pretty large market. To, to be there at those type of retail um, and that retail environment, it's got to have a very large um, audience or market. So that's how that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. The second is uh, for my test, I want something that's fairly inexpensive to manufacture, right? I want to find something that manufacturing techniques already exist. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Doesn't require a new piece of equipment. I can build it with existing equipment that's on the production lines. That sounds complicated, but it's really not. You just kind of see what's being what's being produced, and try to find something that um, with a slight modification. So I'm not I'm not reinventing anything, actually. So those are two two very simple things. And the third, I would I like to find something that um, that people understand instantly, very quickly. You don't have to demonstrate it. They get it. It has a clear benefit that people um, will want and use. So it doesn't require education. It's easy to manufacture and uh, it has a large market. So let's say you find something that, you know, you know, goes through these three steps and, you know, they, they meet that, you know, criteria and you still can separate winners from losers, right? I mean, I don't know if I don't want to ask for an example because I don't want to put you on the spot. But you know, is there is it possible that something meets these three requirements and still you know immediately say, well, this is a loser? No, of course, no one has that crystal ball. So, with the process that I've created and I, I write about it and I've used for many many years. Instead of spending a lot of money on protecting like patents, you file a provisional patent application for $65. You put together a sell sheet, which is really a one-page advertising advertisement for your product that's directed towards a consumer. And I use those two tools. And you can have a sell sheet produced by people on Elance or Fiverr. You can have it done for under $100. So... For less than $200, I can put together perceived ownership. That's with the provisional patent application. I can put together this one-page advertisement, which is done professionally by people on Elance or Fiverr, and I can show it to a company. So there's very, very little risk and very, very little um, expense. So I let the potential licensee, and that's that company that would pay me royalties for it, I let them make the decision if it's a good idea or not. I don't try to do that because I don't have the crystal ball and I don't understand uh, maybe the marketplace as well as they do. So that being said, it's a very inexpensive process. Companies are looking for ideas. They want ideas. And I just keep on submitting ideas and, and that, that, that form, that process. And so how do you pick the one idea uh, to focus on instead of all the other ideas? I think, you know, entrepreneurs uh, are notorious for, you know, getting excited about a lot of different things and grabbing onto many things. So how do you how do you keep focus on on one idea or do you pursue many different ideas simultaneously? You're right. 
a lot of us that are very creative, it's hard for us to stay focused, right? We're, we're all over the board. A new idea comes along, we drop one, you know, we drop the old idea and we run and, and work on a, a new one. So that being said, I believe you have to, and this is what I do, I put a list of what I need to accomplish. And I stick to that list until it's done. Okay, and some parts of it are not as fun. Uh, it's not as fun as other parts, such as coming up with an idea. That's just that's just the magic, right? And calling companies, submitting ideas. That's not as fun. Okay, all right. So, but you have to do it. So I put a list together. I scratch it off. I do the work in the morning that I hate to do to get it out of the way. So later in the afternoon, I can do some of the the fun things. Come up with the ideas. So you have to be focused. You're right. I, I tell everybody, especially my students, please, um, before you start another project, let's complete this one first. All right. And that's, that's how I stay focused. And I, hopefully my students are doing the same thing. You, I mean, you had a lot of success over the years. And uh, you mentioned that, you know, making those calls uh, is not so much fun. Is it easy for you to get through uh, to these companies after all these years? Uh, I... Everybody thinks it's easier for me, but it's not any easier for me. The, the, the bottom line is you're only um, companies, they don't care what you've done in the past. They only care about what you're showing them today. So you don't have to have a lot of experience in this and you don't have to have a reputation because they don't really care. So that, that, so if you realize that you, you have to, also understand, and that's, that's where people get a little hung up here. Companies want you to call them, right? They, they want you to have a good idea. So you just have to try to find a home for your ideas. You need to find a place or, or find a company that can take your idea and, and can, can drive revenue, and they will love you. So they like those calls, but sometimes in our mind, we're thinking at it at, we're thinking about it a little differently. We think it's a sales call, but it's really not. But you can find companies today on LinkedIn, a great source of finding companies looking for ideas. And because of open innovation, meaning companies finally realize, hey, maybe we don't have the smartest guys working for us. And just maybe if we open our doors to look at all these ideas that come in, we're going to find a better idea. So there's been a big shift in the last five years, six years, seven years, there's this huge shift in companies that, that are reaching out and opening the doors for the first time. But for some of us, we're a little shy maybe. Maybe we like to work on prototypes or maybe we like to be creative and maybe we're not the most social person. But you don't have to be now. Through, through the Internet and through emails and through all the ways you can communicate, you can be a pretty shy person, put together a great sell sheet that I mentioned, and let the sell sheet sell for you, right? So you don't have to be a salesperson. Let, let your tools do all the talking for you. And realistically, you know, you can't really pressure people into buying a bad idea, right? I mean, you're not dealing with amateurs when you talk to these companies, right? So maybe people overestimate like the slick salesman skills as opposed to just being helpful and having something of value. That's a very good point. Uh, people ask me, you know, do you, do you fly out and meet with companies and, and make a presentation to them? And I say, and I always tell everybody, 
no, I don't do that. Um, it's, it's not a good use of your time. Number one, most likely the right people will not be in that meeting. And number two, it doesn't matter how great a salesperson you are, eventually you have to leave. So you need to produce a sell sheet that has clearly the benefits, a one-line benefit statement at the very top that kind of brings it all together, describing the, the true benefit of your product to, to a consumer. And that's your tool because that, that sells when you're not there selling. And, and you're absolutely right. So you don't have to be a slick salesperson. That has nothing to do with it anymore. A good product is going to stand up on its own with a sell sheet. So let's talk about how, how do we develop an eye for improving products that are on the market? Do you have, I mean, you know, do you just walk into a store, you walk into a Walmart and just browse around the store and say, you know what, maybe this something, this could be done differently or that could be done differently? Or do you have a formal process for this? Oh, that's, that's a very good question. Traditionally, if you looked at professional um, industrial design firms in the country, they look at it by observation. They make improvements by observation. They'll watch someone maybe use a, let's say, a hammer, and they'll watch people use it. They'll ask questions. They'll try to uncover problems. And that's when they start, once they uncover some of the issues and problems, that's when they use their creativity to come up with some solutions. So they're, they're using the marketplace. They're using data to, to come up with variations that people would maybe like or maybe it's an improvement. That's how they do it. You can do the same thing. You could uh, even go to Amazon and watch what people are reviewing products, see what they say about it. What don't they like about it? What do they like about it? That, that's one way, and that's through observation. That's a very traditional way of coming up with improvements. Myself, I just go down to the store. I look at some of the, the, the products that are there, and I look at a, a micro category. Let's say hammers again. I love that. I love hammers. And so I'll go down to Home Depot and I'll look at all the hammers on the shelf and I'll look at the packaging, I'll look at the benefits, I'll look at the price point, and then I'll start to say, well, what can we do different? What can I add to it? I might look at the material. I might look at, I might ask someone that, that uses the hammer all day through observation, what does he like and what he doesn't like? Most ideas that you will find, those type of improvements, sometimes they've added to uh, two technologies together for the first time and created something new. It's not big changes, it's very small changes, but that's a couple different ways to do it. I have these three games that I play that allow me to be creative. And the first game is, uh, is called What If? And that's the dreaming game. I'll just look at an idea and I'll say, gee, what if this or what if that? And that's just a playful game. The second would be mix and match bringing two ideas together for the first time and, and see if I can create something brand new. That's very, very traditional method of coming up with ideas. And the third one is, um, what if, mix and match. I'm trying to think what the third one is, George. Uh, it's all right. We might come back okay. to it later if it comes, sure. back, comes up. But uh, let's talk about guitar picks because uh, we are talking about making a small change to something that, has been out there for a long, long time. I mean, you have really changed the shape of guitar picks, and you've sold tens of millions of them. How did you come up with that idea? 
Well, I, what's interesting about that, uh, there is a, a very good, well, I wouldn't say a very good friend, but someone I knew in my town that was selling this guitar pick with the shape, because basically a guitar pick has a kind of a, kind of a heart shape, and this person put a face of an alien on it. And it was very clever. He used the, the outline of a guitar pick and, and printed a face of an alien and sold a lot of these. I mean, a lot. I, and I saw that, and it was very, it, it, I, I was always very curious that he did such a simple change, but he made the guitar pick something else. And everybody collected it. Not even, you know, guitar players loved it, but kids collected it. So it became something more than just a guitar pick. That's how it all started. So when we, when we started, a friend of mine uh, came to me that played the guitar. I do not play, and I think that probably helped. That I wasn't a guitarist. I said, Steve, is there anything else you can do to a guitar pick to make it real fun? And I just went down and, and went down to the local mall, and, and I looked at what kids were buying. You know, kids were buying a lot of T-shirts with skulls. The skulls were very popular. And, and once I looked at a skull, it kind of looked like the shape of a guitar pick. I thought, well, why does the guitar pick have to be? There it is. Why? You know, what if you change the shape? So we, we, I changed it to a skull, and it was an instant hit. It was such a simple, simple change. And then we started changing guitar picks in the shape of Mickey Mouse. So I became a Disney licensee. We used different materials, a lenticular lens, where you, you flip it back and forth, and it would give you 13 frames of a movie. And I just started playing with it. Uh, and I think the benefit I had was that I wasn't a guitar player and I had no boundaries. And what happened was we probably ended up selling more guitar picks than the largest manufacturer that had been in business for 30 years because our audience was larger. We changed the packaging. Our audience wasn't guitar players anymore. It was everybody. So we sold millions of, of guitar picks with a simple change. Was there anybody out there that told you that it was a crazy idea, don't do it? Uh, no, but when we first started making the guitar picks, the, the vendor that was going to make them for us was the largest guitar pick manufacturer in the world. And he was a very nice guy. And he kind of laughed at us a little bit, which really helped, to tell you the truth. He thought we were crazy. <laughs> And it helped because we weren't on his radar. He wasn't competition for us. So he made the guitar picks for us. But it grew very quickly. And that's when he looked at it and he, he gave me the nicest compliment because he said, look, I've been in this business for 30 years and I've been looking at guitar picks all my life. And you change a very simple shape change and now you're selling more than I am. And he wasn't competition because he actually made our guitar picks too. So he was, he was benefiting from our, our, our um, creativity. So it, it worked out fine. That was a great validation. What was the, uh, the most popular shape just out of curiosity or is there such a thing? No, there, we had over 150 designs, but the most popular one was definitely the skull. It still sells extremely well today. It, our picks became lifestyle. We had picks with Winnie the Pooh, we had pics of monsters and vampires. We had a full range. We had um, uh, a pic for everyone. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So did you license the uh, guitar picks or did you actually manufacture it? We, I didn't think that this was going to be license, licensable. 
to tell you the truth. And why is that? Well, there's only three or four companies, and everybody was thinking about guitar picks as being more functional than fun. And I thought at the time, you know, how hard can it be? Uh, they only cost pennies. So I thought, why not jump in and see if I can um, do it myself? And that's, that's what happened. And I'm glad I did. I, I made some mistakes along the way. Everybody does. My first designs were not that great. They, they you know, we had to revisit it. Uh, we did some testing on some of so the stores. Why not? Why why not give up when uh, that happened? Did, I mean, uh, did uh, you did you think it was just a small thing, or did you think it was a big uh, big thing with the design uh, changes that you had to make? I made a very crucial mistake at the very beginning. I thought I knew my customer, and I was in my early fifties, and I came up with some designs. They were called hot picks. And they were girls in bikinis. And I was kind of a thought that would be kind of cool. Well, it wasn't that cool. Moms didn't want to buy them for their kids. Stores wouldn't take them. So it, it, it fell apart. It didn't work. Uh, then I looked, then I decided that maybe next time we do this, I should put some designs together and let the kids tell me what they wanted. Boy, what a, what a great thought that is, right? I have to kind of laugh at myself. I, so I asked the kids, I showed them designs, I put up some flyers in all these music stores and they filled them out and I collected them and they told me exactly what they wanted. And I had a skull on there and they just loved that skull design. So the only advice I can give anyone, uh, do some early testing, let the market tell you what it wants and, and leave your own opinion sometimes, your ego and kind of push it to the side. I, I think I have read that it, even though this is a very, very simple product, it took about, what, a quarter of a million dollars to uh, to manufacture these? Yeah, a lot of people are really surprised at that. It didn't start out that way. Um, we, we, you know, my partner and I put in probably $10,000 each and got us started. But really, you cannot scale up and have a big business with such little capital, even though it only, guitar picks were only pennies. But sooner or later, you know, we were selling, you know, in tens of thousands of stores. We became a Walmart vendor. We were selling them in 7-Eleven. And when you grow that fast, it just takes employees. How do you decide between manufacturing and licensing a product once you come up with an idea? What are some of the pros and cons? First of all, you have to ask yourself, how much time do you have? If you're going to start a business, I can tell you right away, it's going to take 40, 50, 60 hours a week for a long time. So you have to be able to dedicate all your time to your business. It's going to take a lot of time. Number two, how much money do you have? And do you have the ability to raise money? Because you're going to need some capital. Even if it's a little guitar pick, it still took a quarter of a million dollars. People are surprised. But even the simplest ideas takes, takes a little bit of money. And I think the third um, would be, you know, what do you really want to do with your time? What type of experience do you have? What type of skill set do you have? And do you have to be the type of person that has to control everything? Because if you do, then manufacturing or venturing is the right thing for you. Okay. But let's say you, you don't want to, you don't have all the skills. You don't want to run a business and you don't want to risk your own money. Then licensing is another option. Licensing doesn't require a lot of capital or a lot of time or a lot of experience. 
So if you're creative, licensing for me and for many, many others is a great avenue. Companies are looking for ideas. When you license or rent your idea to a company, basically what happens is that you're finding a partner that has distribution, that has manufacturing, that has the relationships. Everything's in place, and that provides you really speed to market. A lot of people don't really understand that, but today it could take you three or four years to, to get in the market and build your company, and by that time someone could come in and kind of give you some competition, right? Of course, but if you license with that partner, you could be on the shelf within a year, sometimes faster, sometimes a little bit longer. So licensing is, in my opinion, a new type of business model. Most people aren't aware of it. It's fun. You can be creative. You can live anywhere you want to. You don't have to spend a lot of money, and you don't have to be an expert. So it's, it's a perfect business model for people like myself. So how do you find the right partner for licensing? Oh, great, great question. It's actually very, very simple. If I have an idea... I, I'll go down to the retail um, retail place that I think my idea would would sell. So let's say I have uh, a, a hammer. Uh, let's go back to the hammer again. I would go down to Home Depot or Lowe's or any of the, the do-it-yourself hardware stores, and I would find the aisle that has all the hammers. Now, that's a micro-category. I can look at all the hammers in the world by going online, doing a Google product search, or going down to Home Depot, basically, and look at all the hammers. And if I have a hammer idea, I will call all those other companies that are on that aisle that produce hammers, right? So it's really quite simple. If a company's selling oranges, and I have an orange, that's a perfect fit. But if companies are selling and an apple, and I have an orange, maybe that's not such a great fit. So that's the way I do it. I walk down to the retail store, find the aisle, draw this big target, and I call all those companies. And then how do you find the right contacts? Do you use LinkedIn, or you just call their uh, headquarters and just, you know, who do you contact? Uh, that, that's another question that confuses a lot of people. It's actually quite easy. Uh, you can call the corporate number and most likely an operator is going to pick up that line and they don't really know what to do with someone like us. So I just say, look, I'm a product developer, never an inventor. Uh, they have this, um, you know, you start thinking what an inventor is, that you're actually working in your garage. And I know we all are. You don't want them to know that. So, and they, they're familiar with the product developer because they have them in the company. So, I would call up and give an example. I would say, hi, my name is Stephen Key. I'm with Stephen Key Design. I'm a product developer, and I would like to start submitting ideas to your company. I hear the three magic words. Can you help me? And operators, that's their job is to, to direct people to the right place. And most operators really don't know what to do with that. George. So I know that I want to be, I want to talk to someone in sales because they always pick up their phone or I want to talk to someone in the marketing department because they have responsibility to launching products. So I might say, gee, could I speak to someone in the marketing department, maybe of small tools such as hammers? Great way of getting in. That's one way. The next would be LinkedIn. What a great tool now. 
you can go to LinkedIn and you can look at all the employees at Home Depot and they'll have a product manager and you can contact them straight through LinkedIn now if you want to. Trade shows is another, is another area of making connections. You can always call a company and tell them you've got a great idea and you want to show it to them. There you go. So let's say you read somebody and you set up a time and they meet you and they like what you have and you like them. In terms of making a contract, is there like a standard uh, procedure? Do you contact a specific type of attorney for this, uh, you know, to draw up the right contract? Or how do you protect yourself? Okay. It usually starts with a term sheet first. And a term sheet might have three big items on that term sheet. It might have, okay, do you want an exclusive? Um, maybe the royalty rate or, or maybe the territory. All right, it could, be, it could be other things, but it's usually really big pictures because a term sheet, you're still dating that when, you, when, you, when you're talking about a term sheet with a company. When you get to a contract, it's like a marriage contract, okay? So, and it's a... It, it, Contracts have ugly things in them, uh, and you're going to argue back and forth over contracts. So you always start with the term sheet. One thing I want to state that um, most companies want to have some type of intellectual property protection, but the truth be told that most products in the market don't have patents, and companies would like it, but it's not, the, it's not as important as you think it is. So you file a provisional patent application, and you can do that for $65, and it's very simple to do. So that, that gives you perceived ownership. So before you pick them up, you file a, a PPA. I talked about that before. If they like it, you go to a term sheet, and everybody agrees to three terms or four terms. Then you can ask them, we need to go to contract. They usually write the contract up. And guess what? That contract's going to be really one-sided. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's okay. We all know that. So then you're going to go through it. And I've been teaching the, the contract terms for, for many, many years, but they're pretty basic. They're, there's always the same type of language. They define what, what we're licensing. They might have uh, some other types of performance clause in there and, and other things. And they're not going to go through all the details. But the bottom line is you go to a contract. I negotiate as much as I can, but at the very end, I bring in a licensing attorney to look over this contract to make sure I've done a good job. And I've done them so many years, so they're pretty, they're easy for me. Um, at first, I would always rec recommend to work with someone that's more experienced. Uh, I don't bring in a licensing attorney at the very beginning because these are business terms, George. Mm -hmm. right? And licensing attorneys really want to protect you. I don't. I need the protection later, but I want to make sure I've established the terms that, from a business perspective, that meet my my criteria, my goals. All right, and then I bring them in to make sure I haven't haven't got myself in too much trouble. That's what I do. So uh, there are a lot of people that are really protective of their ideas. Um, how? And you already mentioned the uh, provisional patent as a as a fairly easy first step in terms of protecting your idea. Um, do you think that's uh, well founded? That that so many people are kind of paranoid if they they think they have an idea and you know they can't even open their mouth unless somebody <laughs> signs an NDA, so to speak. 
I look at it very different. I don't think companies steal ideas. And I have been in federal court. I had to sue a company, uh, Legos, a little toy company a few years ago. In court. <laughs> I just don't think companies steal ideas. I, this is what happens. Um, they might find, if you're not, let's put, if you're working with a company and they, they don't like your attitude or they don't like what you're asking for, they might try to get around you. It's called a workaround, right? I don't consider that stealing. They just might try to work around it and see if they can find another way to produce it. So that's why you have to be very, very careful and understand how to file a PPA, provisional patent application, that stops that workaround. And that's not hard to do. But once you realize that, that they're going to do it, they naturally do it. Everybody does. They've got engineers back there, and they're all thinking about different ways and making improvements. So it happens. But usually companies today, because of um, a couple of things, number one, a PPA, provisional patent application, does have power. And they want you to get a patent. So that's a really good thing. Number two, because of social media, it used to be, I could, you know, it, before the internet, who was who I going to tell if some if some company did something that wasn't right? But today, with social media, you can complain, and it never goes away. So they don't like that, and I don't blame them. And the third is that they're looking for ideas. Okay, and here's the fourth, and this is the biggest one. Can you imagine being in a company, and a product comes in, and everybody's standing around, sitting around, they're looking at it, and someone says, hey, why don't we just steal it from this guy? <laughs> <laughs> it's bad business. So I don't, I don't know where all this fear comes from, but it does exist. But I can tell everybody this. If you understand how to write a, a PPA or have an attorney write it, but you, you really need to understand yourself how to stop the workarounds, number one. And, and number two, always have a paper trail. Whoever you're calling or dealing with, always recap your conversations with a paper trail. Next steps. When I was in federal court, that paper trail was critical because it could show it showed it showed what happened. So I think the paper trail is, is a very powerful tool. And the and the other thing I would do, whoever you work with, type in after their name complaints or lawsuits. All right. And if a lot of stuff comes up that doesn't look really inventor friendly, find another company. There's lots of them out there that will want and and, and appreciate working with you. So how do we get people to believe that they don't actually have to start a company to be an entrepreneur? You know, if they have ideas, they can license them. I, I think some people feel that, you know, if they're licensing something, they're not building a business. Oh, licensing is building a business, though. Uh, if you license, if you're in a game of licensing, eventually you're going to build relationships with multiple companies. And those relationships are very important because they're going to tell you eventually what they're looking for. So you've got to conduct yourself. It's just a different type of business. You're going to be very good at provisional patent applications. You're going to, you're going to work with designers on Elance and Fiverr to get good sell sheets. You're going to probably visit manufacturing facilities to understand the latest manufacturing so you can incorporate that in some of your, your PPAs. So you're working you're just you're doing you just finding a different partner. You're working you're really kind of um, working with a big company. So it takes up more time than people think, especially when the revenue starts to come in, and you're you're licensing multiple ideas now. 
So uh, one of my ideas that um, someone else actually invented before I did, I didn't know it at the time, 50 years ago, is a project I've been, I still been, I've been collecting royalties for over 15 years, and I still do today. And I manage a, a patent portfolio that's close to 50 patents for them. I help with the manufacturing. I help, help them because it's, it's a big revenue generator for me and for them. So it's a, it's a business. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it seems to me that if there was ever a, a passive income business, licensing is passive income business. I don't know of any business today that, that has this large a potential that requires so little of your time and, and so little of capital and experience. I don't know if it exists. Can you talk about a failed a failed product, perhaps, because uh, I don't want people to think that everything is a winner. Oh. Uh, and I'm sure you had some some products that you know didn't go anywhere, but there were also that it was also a good learning experience for you. Maybe one of those you could share with our audience. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because nothing's ever completely rosy, right? Okay, so let's talk about the downsides. All right. The downsides are you're going to have to come up with a lot of ideas. You know, one or two, eh, you know, okay. But most of the people I know or my students, including myself, I've had to pitch a lot of ideas. So it's a numbers game like anything else in life, right? A lot of, uh, not a lot, but quite a few of my ideas. I went back one day. Someone had asked me, Steve, how much money have you made from all your ideas? And I listed all the ideas I came up with and all the money that came through it. And, and I realized a lot of the income that came in were through advances or minimum guarantees that the product never came to market, right? They, they paid an advance or minimum guarantees, and for some reason, management changed or maybe the industry changed, and you do all this work, and it never comes to market. You still made some money, and you, still, you did okay, but it wasn't a big hit. So... You have to kind of um, realize you're going to have some big hits, small hits. It's a business like everything else, but it's a business that gives you some freedom. It's a business that gives you unlimited potential of income, which is pretty exciting for me. And I think for other people, it allows someone to be creative. So everything has its downsides, but I can say one thing. Whatever you do in life, uh, to really be good at something, you have to practice. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on Success Harbor today to share your wisdom about licensing and, and just your creativity. How can people reach out to you or learn more about some of the services that you offer? Oh, very good. Uh, first of all, George, thank you very much um, for this time to, to talk about licensing. It's been a passion of mine for, for many, many years. I would tell if anybody's really beginning to, to – they want more information about licensing, they can all, always purchase uh, my first book from McGraw-Hill. It's called One Simple Idea. You can pick it up at, on, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's been in the top 10 for three years now on Amazon, and, and it's been translated in five different languages. That's, what, that's a good start. It's a very easy read. You'll find it, you'll enjoy it very much. If you want more information, you can always go to my my company site is called Invent Right. You don't want to invent wrong. You want to invent right. That's R-I-G-H-T dot com. 
and we have videos, interviews, a lot of stuff up there. It's absolutely free that you can learn. I believe one thing, George. I, I believe this knowledge is too important not to share. So I, we have a lot of information that's available. It's absolutely free. And if you want more than that, we have a coaching and mentoring program. It's for a full year that you get to work with myself and my partner, Andrew Krauss. And we basically hold your hand through the whole process and make sure nothing goes wrong. So we do that as well. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. Everybody out there, check out inventright.com or go to Amazon and, and buy One Simple Idea by Stephen Key. Thank you very much, and I wish you much success in the next 30 years in licensing. Thank you very much, George. It's been a pleasure. Bye, everyone.